Yep, it's the Jeremy Webisodes podcast. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, once again to the show. And if you're a weekly lava lamper, you will recognize instantly that something's different. We're a little off format here. So what's going on is Ryan and I, we are on the road, and we're in Louisville, Kentucky. Actually, we're not in Louisville. We are driving back into Louisville from Bardstown, Kentucky, which is actually Bourbontown, USA. In fact, we just drove by the Jim Beam Distillery... Today we've been to Heaven Hill Distillery and Bardstown uh, Bourbon Company, and um, it's been it's been awesome. Basically, this is the mecca for bourbons. Like, you know, the majority of all the big names that you've ever heard of are manufactured right here in Bardstown, Kentucky. So. Um, we have sampled Elijah Craig today. We have sampled Larceny, um, the uh, F, the Fitzgerald, the the Mellow Corn. Yeah. Big big fan of the Mellow Corn. Yeah, and that was uh, it was interesting to see that that was on their on their tasting. Yeah. Their so ma- we the did the tasting that we did today. Yeah, we did a tasting at uh, Heaven Hill. And Mellow Corn was the very first one on their tasting, so I thought that was I thought that was cool. I'm a big fan. I know it's um, not everyone's favorite, but uh, if you're gonna mix yourself a Jack and Coke, go ahead and forego the Jack and do yourself a favor and mix yourself a Mellow Corn and Coke. And I think you're gonna find that you're gonna really like it. I'm not telling you to go out and drink a bunch of Mellow Corn neat and try to convince all your friends that it's the best bourbon in the entire world because uh, it's not even bourbon. It's aged in ex-bourbon barrels, but it mixes great with Coke. Let's just put it that way. Um, so we are uh, driving through a rainstorm. What freeway are we on? 65. We're on the 65. Driving. Uh, how do you feel right now? Feel great. Right? It's a nice. No, uh, there's no reason to question your ability to be able to no. properly operate a vehicle, right? Or no, 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 no. Um, no, I've been, uh, you know, following all the rules, uh, you know, I had, uh, had a, had a little taste, had a grill water, we had a meal. We stopped in Bardstown. Yeah. Had a meal at a little place called Mammy's. It was fantastic. I had a hot brown. Nice. Do you know what a hot brown is? I do. You t- a hot brown for you, uh, the lava lamper out there who doesn't know what a hot brown is. It's a little something invented here in Louisville, Kentucky, at the Brown Hotel, which is a one of my favorite old hotels in the entire country. I love it. If you get a chance, if, first of all, if you ever have any friends coming from out of the country, here let's even go further back than that. If you if you're an American. And you've never been to Louisville, Kentucky. Do yourself a favor. Next time you're thinking, oh, where are we going to go? Let's do a family trip. Let's go to Denver, Colorado. Let's go ski. Thank you for asking. I hope you and your loved ones are safe and healthy. Let me know if I can help with something. You can't. 
I wish you would just shut up. I'm sorry. Excuse me, ma'am. Can you please be quiet? I'm trying to conduct a podcast. Hey, man. Christmas. Anyway, do yourself a favor, ladies and gentlemen. Go to Louisville, Kentucky. Now, Louisville, Louisville, however you want to pronounce it, it is America. I mean, it's like... It's, yeah, it's uh, it's little little pasture land, some trees, beautiful houses. It's a great um, little, like, small town feel for a fairly large city. Yeah. Great food and tons and tons of bourbon. I mean, hot and cold running bourbon. It's everywhere. Bourbon in the streets. Um, it's great. It is, I think it's, it's, and bourbon being, like, the American whiskey... Uh, I think if you're an American, you got to do yourself a favor. Come here. If you're a whiskey uh, connoisseur, then so much so, you should come here. And I'm, my my new thing is if you're if someone's coming in from out of country, you know, if someone's coming in from Germany or Japan or anywhere out of the country to visit, and they're looking for the quintessential American experience, yeah. I would tell them to go to Louisville, Kentucky, man. Yeah, it's. It's definitely got the whole thing. It's got the it's got the story uh, on how everything was created. It's got the product. It's got it's it's so it's so great. Everywhere you look is something historic or something at least interesting. Right, historic. and it's and super accessible. Yeah, it's not too. It's not like. Um, well, I mean, for example, like almost every you know we're here for a distilling convention, and so a lot of the top tours and you know uh, distilleries are, are not open for you know or are just sold out on tours and uh, and anybody coming to their facility right the but, who's who of the distilling world is here in yeah. Louisville right now but fortunately some of our you know partners in this you know getting this off the ground um, have pulled some strings and we were able just to show up at a major distillery and they just took us on a personal tour because... Yeah, I mean, I think we can be totally transparent with this whole thing. So we're here in Louisville, Kentucky for the ADI convention, which is... Um, ADI is the American Distilling Institute, and it's a craft distilling uh, conglomeration. They put themselves together to basically inform uh, potential distillers, current distillers, and the public about the craft distilling world market um, and keeping everybody kind of up above the board on that and so the ADI convention is here in Louisville and it is like I said the who's who of the craft distilling industry um, from label makers to bottle manufacturers to enclosure manufacturers to distillery uh, still manufacturers um, software grain uh, flavor houses whatever you can think of that would be used in the craft distilling industry everybody's here and it's a big convention it's the comic con of the craft distilling industry and so um, it's been rad we are working with a company called Shroud Tate Wilson and our you've heard me probably reference it before Ronnie uh, our engineer consultant that we're working with at Shroud Tate Wilson um, has been an amazing yeah. resource and Ronnie used to work for a company called Vendome, which is the largest copper uh, still manufacturer in the United States, the oldest, the pre-prohibition company. Well, we're getting, Webb's Grain Works is getting uh, our still from Vendome. We're super fortunate to be working with them, stoked. And 
So because of that, we were able to go to the ADI convention on Vendome's uh, badge, which yeah. was awesome. So that was a great connection. Uh, Ronnie was a big part of putting that whole thing together. And then today, while we were at the convention, we wandered by the Bardstown booth um, and uh, met Susie there at the Bardstown booth. And she hooked us up with Dan out at the distillery. We were out there within like an hour, and we got a full private tour of, of the entire the still, the fermenters, um, entire operation from uh, basically from from grain all the way to the barrel, and that was amazing. Yeah. They're, they're, they during COVID they shut down and cleaned everything and added a, a new um, what would you call that? The line they added to the barrel filling. The filling. Well, it's, so it's a fully automated. Um, well, they, not fully automated. Well, almost. They they load the barrel out of one truck. It rolls into the house. It uh, fills. Oh, it, well, somebody fills it. Yeah. Well, I mean, they yeah they, they all they do is you know drop the hose down. It fills to its appropriate level. The bungs put into it automatically. Nope. Yeah. They, they used a, a hammer on that one. That that guy swung a hammer at Heaven Hill. Really? I mean, at Bardstown. Yeah, when, he, when they show the thing. The video the camera, is the was, thing, but that was Heaven Hill. Okay. At Bardstown, the, when we went to Bardstown, they just had shut down their thing. They, they had added a, a, an entire um, barrel filling area that was, like, semi-automated. So the, it pulled all the barrels in. A guy would roll it around, fill it, and then slam a bung in it, and they would roll out the other side, and, and they would fill a truck with it. So they're bringing in barrels, filling them. Rolling them out to a truck that's hauling them off to a rick house to stack them. Yeah, 550 of them a day. 550 barrels a day. At 53 gallons a barrel. Yeah. Uh, pretty amazing. Um, both these facilities. The Heaven Hill is the largest family-owned. We, we, we just pretty recently did the Heaven Hill show. Um talking about their fire that they had there it was an amazing story the Shapiras came you know bought Heaven Hill from a guy named like something Heaven Hill and uh, hence the name and um, they are the largest family owned bourbon distillery in the world and they're filling I forget how many uh, proof gallons that they're throwing out a day but and they're churning it out ladies and gentlemen and it's pretty pretty spectacular but at the same time, um, they're doing it with uh, with the, the same way they've always done it. I mean, yeah. the, the procedure hasn't changed. It's you know, there's not a whole lot of extra um, automation. That's why when you said that an automated, I wanted to be clear that so much of this stuff is still all done. There's still a person's hand involved in it. You know, even though they've added some things here and there to help that individual like in for instance in the barrel filling room you know they added some conveyor belts to move those big heavy barrels around but for the most part I mean especially at, at Bardstown I noticed I, I like the fact that there was a dude kind of throwing it on the conveyor belt a dude filling it and, the, and he literally using a bung hammer to drive in the bung at the end before it went back on the truck so I thought that was super cool because um, it, it, with, with like with anything you get too far away from the soul and the spirit and the people and it becomes you know uh, just another product it could be Gerber baby food or gasoline or something that we probably care a lot less about and don't get those mixed up the yeah. Gerber baby food and the gasoline so it's been um, it's been absolutely amazing uh, at the uh, convention we've had the opportunity like I said everybody was there 
Um, so some of the people that we were interested in talking to uh, were, I was really interested in speaking to the Coopers that were there, all the Cooperages. Um, and uh, we, we spoke to Kelvin, we spoke to um, West Virginia. Uh, uh, yeah, Independent Stave Company here in, in Kentucky. We spoke to uh, the West, West Virginia Barrel Company. Yeah. Is that what they're called? Really cool. Love their story. Um, based in, I'm, I'm going to get this wrong. I th- I'm not even going to try. I think Lewisburg. I don't know the name of the city. It's some. It's 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 in West Virginia. It's near White Sulphur Springs. Um, and I don't have my notes in front of me, so off the top of my head, I can't think exactly where they are. But um, it's really really cool. West Virginia has a long history of cooperages. Um, right outside Morgantown, West Virginia, where I went to college, there's a place called Cooper's Rock. And Cooper's Rock was named because there's a cave system there. And during the Civil War. Um, it is where the Union Army was manufacturing uh, gunpowder and uh, and filling barrels full of it. And they were coopering barrels there um, to fill full of gunpowder for the Union Army. So it's cool. There's a long history of, of coopering out in West Virginia. And the happy coincidence is that it's all white American oak, which is exactly what you need to make bourbon. So uh, it's cool. It's uh, second growth... Uh, white American oak, uh, 100%, and made right there in West Virginia. And I got to be honest, um, that was my favorite Cooper that we spoke to. Uh, I would really love to be able to work with them because of my story connects with West Virginia, and uh, so much of the alcohol market is the story. And so to be able to continue that story arc and take it all the way to the Cooper and be able to con- continue that whole thing, I, I really like that. Um, so. I would say for sure we will be working with them whether or not they are our primary Cooper or not that remains to be seen because at the end of the day this is a business and it can't be 100% driven by passion Um, we have to be somewhat mindful of the actual bottom line and so you know if uh, if logistically it doesn't work out you know financially and logistically for us to get 100% of our barrels from them um, it would be it would be great at, at least to source some barrels from them and, and do a heritage release or something like that. So I mean, the, and the other thing and direction I think you're going is that we do have California cooperages. Right. We uh, we live in a state where there's the wine industry that they use the same kind of oak that the bourbon industry uses for their barrels. So yeah, we I'm sure so we, we have, have options. Right. You know, and um and if and if we can. If we can do them primarily out of West Virginia, that's fantastic. But we have options to dual source and figure out what we need. Maybe those are used for special occasions, special barrels. Uh, but, yeah, it's nice to have options and to meet people in those arenas. We spoke to, um, I mean, not to get too far into the weeds, but I'm sourcing everything. So we're looking, you know, for yeast. I got, I got to speak to a couple um, labs about yeast. I'm, I'm a big fan of white labs. Um, and uh, Firm Labs uh, are two of the labs that I'm looking at right now. It's amazing. Um, 
something we haven't really spoken a lot about on the show before, but um, something that I want to make very, very clear, especially to the, the you know burgeoning bourbon and whiskey connoisseur, or alcohol connoisseur in general, is a lot of the flavor in your alcohol. We've spoken before in a brown alcohol, up to 60% of the flavor comes from the wood. 100% of the color comes from the wood, the oak that it's, it's matured in. But there are those, so 60%, so where's the rest of the flavor coming in? Well, obviously the, the grain, you know, that you um, sourced your alcohol from, the grain you fermented from, uh, the, um, the method, if you use copper or you don't use copper, there's definitely flavor imparted there. We've discussed the fact that copper removes the sulfur uh, flavor. I don't know what the chemistry term is off the top of my head. Sulfides? Yeah. Sulfuric something? But anyway, it removes that eggy smell and taste. Um, But also something that does contribute to the flavor of the alcohol is the yeast that you use to convert from whatever starch that you get your sugars from. So whether you have start or or maybe you don't you don't start from a starch if you're not starting from uh, a grain and you're starting from fruit, then you don't have to convert starch. You you instantly you have fructose, and then there's specific yeasts that convert fructose into alcohol, imparting certain congeners. And congeners are a flavor that carry over into the distillate and are an important part of what you're going to taste at the very end of the whole thing. Um, and so certain yeasts create certain congeners. And certain yeasts work better with different things. There are yeasts that convert starch better and yeasts that convert sucrose. And a lot of times when you're working with grain, what we've talked about in the past, in the case of things like... Um, ergot and in awamori the black koji there are these molds and these that have these symbiotic relationships with a specific grain and that mold whatever you want to call it or or indigenous yeast um has a a really innate ability to convert that specific thing so in the case of black koji black koji is really really good at converting rice starch into sugar Whereas ergot is really, really good in in making uh, you hallucinate. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and with rye, exactly. Um, so anyway, uh, the yeast that you pick to work with is definitely going to be a big deal. It's not just yeast. You don't just use, uh, you know, Fleisch, Fleischer's baking yeast, although you can, and I have, theoretically, distilled and fermented using Fleischer's baking yeast. Um, so yeah, you can use any yeast, but yeast does uh, contribute a flavor in the in the form of congeners to the final distillate. And so, um, in in our case, or in the case of somebody that's producing, you know, for distribution, or you know, producing for sale, or producing because they want it to taste good, you're gonna want to pay attention to what yeast you're using because it's definitely gonna impart specific flavors. So we talked to uh, some yeast labs which was cool. We talked to some glass producers, started to talk about our bottle, bottle shapes, things like that. Which is, you know, to bring up one thing there, uh, glass is extremely hard to come by right now. Right. I mean, we're, we're talking... Are like... Pe- people who are putting an order in that was supposed to be, you know, they put an order in three months ago, four months ago, that, that should have been delivered in October is now getting pushed to March. And, uh, We're so finding lead times on all materials are pushed are way way far out, man. Yeah, far out, man. Yeah, 
But yeah, glass particularly. Every if you go on any kind of uh, craft distilling or even on the large scale distilling blog or whatever, everybody right now is talking about that they can't get their glass. Yeah, we were we learned today that um, you know there's the same amount of um, glass furnaces. and furnaces out there that uh, the the same number of furnaces and everything out there uh, ha- hasn't increased in like 60 years. Well, what was the other one? Before 1996, there were 200 distilleries in the United States. Yeah. Now there's thousands. 2,000. 2,000 easily. Yeah. So the, the demand for things like glass, labels, corks, stuff like that has gone drastically up. Yeah. Um, whereas they only still have the same amount of manufacturing happening. Yeah. So that is starting to become a little bit of a pinch point. Yeah. Um... Something that's very interesting kind of along that same point is that we are not yet back up to the number of distilleries that we were pre-prohibition yet, which is interesting. Crazy. And the reason for that is back in the day before distribution, um, every town had their own distillery. Yeah. It was where you got your boot, your your hooch. Well, there wasn't. There wasn't nearly the laws and everything in place to say you can't make that here. Right. You have to be so far away from a school, or you have to be blah blah blah. Right. So so anybody could open anything, and now it is you know, and and you know prohibition obviously closed down a huge, you know, uh, a big number of those. Um, but then now they they still haven't gotten to the point where they they've reopened, and now it's even harder. Which is if you, if you've been listening to us and listening to the last three years of. Uh, experience that we've had it's uh it's quite quite crazy i mean every industry is having stuff with uh having problems with um, supply chain but now it's 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 visible in our world which is uh i mean on every level all the way to the build out just trying to get the materials to build the, the distillery itself just trying to get the copper to build the still the steel to put in our supports to try to shoehorn a caboose into the front of the building yeah um we're we're just experiencing kind of long leads on all of that stuff but it's nice to know in this situation when rubbing elbows with all these you know people um seeing that they're all kind of experiencing the same frustrations so yeah and but you know and the other things with the suppliers that we talk to they're like you know of course everybody wants to make a buck and everybody's like yeah we're we'll tell you what our lead time is and you can either choose to use us or not but we're at least now that we've met and we know who you are and what we're trying to do, like we're gonna try to make this work for both of us. So that was a pretty cool situation. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention another one of the distilleries that we got an opportunity to go to. Unfortunately, we didn't get the full kind of tour, but we went to Peerless uh, right here in, in Louisville. Uh, if you have not checked out Peerless's products, they are absolutely amazing, um, and even more amazing are the yeah. people that started it and the people that are running it. It's a family business. Uh, we walked in, a couple of schlubs off the street, um, walked into the distillery uh, in their uh, merch area, and um, the, the owner of the entire distillery, the guy who started it all, uh, Corky Taylor, is, is standing there. Uh, Asks us how we're doing, shakes our hand, end up having a nice 15, 20 minute conversation with him uh, about what we're doing and uh, 
uh, he shared his story, and and it's just it's an amazing. It was cool. It was just amazing. Yeah. So uh, check out Peerless. Check out their products. Buy them. We support them. Uh, he just very well played, sir. Um, that that entire experience was was uh, phenomenal. So shout out, you know, Corky Taylor. Thank you for your hospitality, sir. Uh, the likelihood that you'll ever listen to this podcast is pretty much nil. But uh, I, 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 I would, like I said, I would be remiss if I didn't mention that experience because it was, uh, it was awesome. It was a highlight for sure. So we're pulling in here to downtown Louisville. We're back, back from Bardstown. Bardstown, amazing. Um, you know, rolling bluegrass, Kentucky hills. Uh, and rick houses, as far uh, as the eye can see. It's just, describe what a rick house, what, so, the, what that's like. Is that that's the first time you've ever seen a commercial yeah. rick house? Yeah, I mean, so they're seven stories tall. Um, granted, these are modern rick houses, so they're they're they've got you know. Uh, if you don't know, but just if you don't know what we mean by rick house, rick house is once you make a, a bourbon, you put it in a barrel, and then where you store it to age for four years is called the rick house. So yeah, they're just basically a modern. Uh, large building, seven stories, and they just pack pack them full of um, of barrels, and they're gigantic. And you know, it's a it's we're talking a, it's a small office. It's a, yeah. not even a small. It's a medium sized office building that is now just storing uh, barrels for by the tens, twenties, thousands. Yeah. And and then and you look on the hillside, or you know, just out out of the distillery, and you see seven in your local. This, you know, eye shot, and uh, um, and and that's a shit ton of barrels. I that's mean, a lot of bourbon. That's a lot of bourbon. You start to realize that. Um, I think Heaven Hill said they own sixteen. Yeah. I mean, man, <laughs> it's a lot of barrels of bourbon. But when you see how many they're filling a day, I mean, there's got to be somewhere for that to sit and store for four years. So yeah, in the game of making bourbon, which particularly is. is has to be four years um there's a lot of sitting around and that starts to take a lot of space big 53 gallon barrels stacked seven stories high uh, it's very impressive the smells you know one of the things was super cool is you know you, you walk into to heaven hill or you walk into bardstown you smell the corn cooking um big open fermenters take the parking ticket Please take the parking. I mean, I've been interrupted so many times by rude women on this podcast. <laughs> the big open fermenters, how cool is that? Yeah. See the, the, the yeast working, the corn bubbling. The guy tells you to stick your finger right in it. Hey, you want to taste it? Yeah. And at and first you're like, really? You're like, I'm, I'm pretty sure this is against every health code. <laughs> yeah, no, you, you're totally allowed to stick your finger in the fermenter because it's going through the, the still. Yeah. And they're open fermenters. There's nothing covering them. They're big, wide, open vats of fermenting corn. And uh, I've told this story before. Back in the day, they, they used to talk about, because the, the, one of the um, byproducts of fermentation is CO2. And so there's a huge CO2 cloud forming above these fermenters. When you imagine, you know, what, what did he, do you know how many gallons those fermenters were at Bardstown? I think 1,600 gallons. Oh, no, no, no. It was way more than that. It was uh, to like 22,000. Jesus. Yeah. So anyway, you can imagine uh, in, a, in, a, in a big vat that big how much CO2 potentially is being put off of it. 
and they create these big CO2 pockets above them. And um, in some of these big old uh, distilleries, they're open. You know, birds are flying in, and they, and they talk about what bird would fly in, and he'd hit that CO2 pocket and pass out before he made it to the other side. Um, rats are crawling in there and, and, and you know, suffocating on top of the, the ferment. And the distiller would come in in the morning and pull dead birds and rats and stuff off the top of the fermenters. And it's really not a big deal because it's all going through the, the, the still. Yeah. So it's, it's all going to get boiled, sterilized. turned into steam, and sterilized. Yeah. So um, I know that I was mentioning earlier that there are kinds of uh, old mezcal that are fermented with rabbit meat in them, chicken, mole. Uh, so, yeah, but it's all going through the still. So, yeah, we were sticking our fingers in the fermenters today at Bardstown. We tasted their uh, their high wines right as it came off the column. Yeah, they're like, yeah, they're like, put your hand in it and take take a little scoop. Like, you know, put your cup, your two hands. He said it was like 160-something proof. Yeah, and he, and he had a little, little funnel there, a little uh, thing, and poured it into our hands. He's like, just pick it up and taste it. And then just wipe your wash your hands down with it because it's, it's hand sanitizer. It's hand sanitizer at, the, at its best. So that was pretty awesome. And then we finished it all out. We went to a little place called Mammy's right there in Bardstown. Uh, had a hot brown. Did I talk about that already? Yeah, a little bit. A hot brown. Probably the best open face sandwich you've ever had in your entire life. Here's what Wikipedia has to say about it. A hot brown sandwich, sometimes known as a Louisville hot brown or a Kentucky hot brown, is an American hot sandwich originally created at the Brown Hotel in Louisville, Kentucky by Fred K. Schmidt in 1926. It is a variation of traditional Welsh rarebit and was one of two signature sandwiches created by chefs at the Brown Hotel shortly after its founding in 1923. It was created to serve as an alternative to a ham and egg late night dinner. What is it? Like I mentioned before, it's an open-faced sandwich. Uh, It is turkey breast or ham. Sometimes it's turkey and ham. Turkey and ham on Wonder Bread, essentially, covered in Mornay sauce. Mornay sauce is bechamel with cheese in it, so like a cheese sauce. And then baked or broiled with cheddar cheese over the top. So open-faced sandwich, ham or turkey. The one I had tonight had ham and turkey, Mornay sauce, cheddar cheese, stick it under the salamander so it all gets all bubbly and brown on the top. And then a lot of times they throw a big slice of tomato and a couple extra slices of bacon right on top. That is a hot brown. And let me tell you, it's worth your time. So, like I said before, come to Louisville, Kentucky. Send people from out of the country to Louisville, Kentucky. Come here, drink copious amounts of really good bourbon, and then in the middle of the night when you think you've just about had enough, eat a big hot brown. All right, well, thanks for being here, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, as always, you know, we, we very much appreciate it. Um, we didn't get to the to the lava lamp tonight because I can't be 100% sure that it's burning brightly, but I hope 
that at home, in the lab, it is burning brightly as a beacon for all the lost souls in the world. May they find their way home. And we will find our way home next week and have a, a regular old show, catch you guys all up. We'll have Josh back in the studio. And we look forward to seeing you right here next week on the Jeremy Webisodes Podcast.